0: you're listening to One Decision. A single choice can trigger a wave of events, affect millions of people, and impact the world. Like many of our colleagues, we've been scrutinizing Russian President Vladimir Putin's decision to invade Ukraine, why he did it, what led to it, and how the choice of a single man has ripped up an entire country, triggering an exodus for millions of Ukrainian civilians fleeing their homes. Clarissa Ward is Chief International Correspondent for CNN. In her time as a journalist, she's seen firsthand how war has devastated people around the world. She's recently returned back to London from the frontlines in Ukraine, so it was wonderful to sit down with her and my regular co-host Sir Richard Dearlove. Well, the three of us caught up just after Vladimir Putin had made a much anticipated speech in Moscow for the May 9th Victory Parade, an annual military pageant which celebrates the Red Army's victory against the Nazis back in 1945. There had been much expectation that Putin would make some kind of major announcement in his speech, a declaration of war and mass mobilization, or perhaps claiming victory in the Donbass. Yet again, he took us all by surprise. It was, uh, by by many accounts of it, it was a bit of a damp squib since he never really gave uh, any major announcement as we have been anticipating him to do so.
1: Well, I was really surprised when I read the text of the speech and I rang up one of my military commentating friends and his comment was, Putin blinked, <laughs> which mm. I thought was an interesting comment um, because there wasn't any apparent move towards escalation and I just wonder whether there is something deeper going on in Moscow. Those of us who've lived, well, behind the Iron Curtain, you know, know what the 9th of May is like and the sort of parades and um, emotions that, those powers that, you know, defeated German Nazis uh, attached to this date, it's hugely significant in the calendar. Um, and yeah, it, 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 it it was a, it was a damn squid, but I mean, I think, you know, he blinked maybe something, you know, what happens next is now what interests me.
2: I, um, I thought it was very interesting in the sense of when everybody predicts one thing, President Putin tends to do something completely different, which then throws everybody off balance for one second and everyone's thinking, well, what did he mean by that? And what does this... And um, I think that what it allows him to do, because I, I agree that it does sort of seem like, you know, did he blink or not? I think it's an it's an interesting read on it. But what it also allows him to do is just to continue this war of attrition, essentially the sort of grind that could go on for months and months in the background and not necessarily formulate it. In the minds of Russian people is this, you know, hugely important thing at the forefront of the national agenda, but more as there's a special operation going on to defeat Nazism that, you know, some of your loved ones are involved with and it's going well, but we don't need to like obsessively focus on it. Right. It's just sort of going on in the background and will be going on in the background. It seems sort of vague. And amorphous, um, which gives more opportunity to prolong, um, although I would say the one clear sort of upside is that there's no sense that it's going to be expanded again. It really seems to be focused on Donbass. But looking at how incremental the progress is in Donbass at the moment, that could still be years of of conflict potentially um so maybe he was sort of paving the way for that in sort of an understated way i just don't know i've given up many years ago trying to exactly uh guess as to the workings of uh, of his mind but um it certainly was unexpected
0: does he not need to carry popular opinion with him? And does a war of attrition, a long war against a neighboring country with whom so many Russians have got family members and cousins, is that a good strategy?
2: Well, I think on the on the first part of that, clearly nothing about this is a good strategy. Um, I think rarely have we seen President Putin... Uh, attempt such an audacious gamble that has backfired so spectacularly in his face and caused him such a huge amount of of damage, uh, both reputationally, economically on the international forum. I do think it's easy, though, sometimes in the West for us to be a little overly optimistic about how people are receiving and responding to what's happening in Ukraine inside Russia which is not to say that there hasn't been dissent in, in you know within certain ranks of the Kremlin that may well be the case and 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 the same I'm sure within some quarters of the military in terms of how the whole thing's been managed but by and large president putin still does have a strong level of support in russia and i don't think that has been hugely diminished by the so-called special operation in Ukraine, in part because it's, you know, as your listeners, I'm sure, already know, but it bears repeating, Russian people are not being told anything that's really happening in Ukraine, except for propaganda and talking points that serve the Kremlin's objectives. So you have seen time and time again instances where... People in Ukraine will call family members, as you rightly point out, there's a huge amount of crossover and intermarriage between the two countries, and they will say, you know, Uncle Vanya was killed. And, and this happened in our town and that happened. And the person on the other line in Russia will say, that's not possible. That's not possible. This is a special operation to defeat the Nazis who are raping Ukrainian women and who are awful. And you know, so the level of indoctrination is really profound. It is possible, of course, with all these various uh, economic punishing sanctions in place, that it will become much more difficult for ordinary Russians. Sometimes it can take a while to feel the full force of of those sanctions. Although, again, in my experience, the Russian mentality in these sorts of times, especially if they feel the world is turning against Mm. them, is to pivot inwards get your head down, struggle and survive. And there is an incredible stoicism slash fatalism that kicks in uh, that may well carry the day. Now, this may be why President Putin did not do something like calling it a full-scale war, announcing a widespread mobilization, because he may have decided strategically that that would be a bridge too far in terms of there will be many more people involved then, you have raised the bar significantly, you are creating a possibility for internal dissent as the war progresses and maybe doesn't go the way you'd hoped. But at the status quo level and based, you know, not on actually being inside the country, but just in what I'm reading and seeing and hearing, I do not see a palace coup as being imminent.
1: I agree, no palace coup as well, because you know we've never. There's never been a palace coup in Russia, and there's no reason at all to think that there would be now. But I just wonder whether we might see Putin at some point shuffled off to a sanatorium, um, and you know, not really reappearing, um, and that the elegant way out is not to have a coup and I, I i think there is there's quite a bit of evidence now beginning to emerge that is that the, the sort of other siloviki and the senior generals and the russian general staff they must be deeply concerned that they're they're on a road to nowhere and that somehow they need to back out of a one-way street with a dead end
0: uh, you bring up the siloviki which is this um this uh a name that loosely refers to Uh, Putin's inner circle, which is largely comprised of former intelligence officers. And there is reportedly deep resentment, apparently, among members of Russia's military elite that reportedly takes issue with Putin and with the Silovikis, uh, civilians with largely very little battlefield experience themselves, commanding a military operation. There's complaints about top-down corruption, which is resulting in bad equipment, poorly planned logistics. We've had CNN reporting on um, leaked communications of uh, Russian soldiers complaining about these sorts of things, about the rations that they're receiving, the fact that they don't have fuel uh, when they're going into Ukraine. And indeed, everyone pretty much in this inner circle is a former intelligence officer, not a field army veteran. So one thing that I'm really curious of, how much longer is the army going to keep marching to putin's tune and and why isn't the russian military sort of empowered enough to launch a coup against these kgb civilians richard tell us tell us your thoughts and, and particularly actually because sergey sergey shoigu who is the defense minister i believe he was appointed in 2012 as minister of defense despite having no battlefield experience i mean there's got to be a lot of resentment
1: well i think shoigu you know is a I mean, he's, he, he's there by virtue of his relationship with Putin and his loyalty to Putin. And he doesn't have a military track record. So that probably must be a problem for some of the professional generals. Um, and, you know, he, 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 to me, he looks like a, a slightly sort of idiotic figure. Maybe I'm putting that a bit too strongly, but he's not an impressive um, individual. Um I mean I knew and still know one or two of the key Siloviki. I mean the the, the, the cast has changed since I dealt with these people. But the one who is still there and probably more powerful is Petrushev. Um and Petrushev was head of the FSB for a longish period of time and I met him in that capacity. Um and and he's a very tough, clever, sinister, um, difficult man. Um, I would be very wary of him, but I don't think there's any denying his intelligence and his capability. And, uh, I mean, I I, I think if if my thesis were fulfilled and Putin did disappear into a sanatorium, I think he's the likely stand-in and, of course, the standing in this scenario probably becomes permanent. I mean, you know, there is no succession planning <laughs> in the Russian leadership. They don't, you know, they they they, they, they certainly don't succession plan. Um, and, you know, it's probably a lethal occupation if you were to do so. But the invasion of, you know... Ukraine from 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 the north down through this narrow valley towards Kiev you know, was an absolute military disaster, and suggests to me that it wasn't planned by the military, but it was planned by the um, small group of you know yes men who sit around Putin. They and they didn't understand. Well, there's lots of things they didn't understand, but they didn't certainly didn't understand um the way that the capability of the Ukrainian army had been increased. It, 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 it's such an extraordinary failure. I mean, this it, it has actually changed the geopolitics of Europe, um, and in a way, this this is why I think this this parade where nothing happened, <laughs> or relatively speaking, nothing significant happened, is probably very significant in itself because it was the obvious occasion for Putin to sort of cast his further you know, evil designs upon the future of Europe and he wasn't able to do it.
2: Well, was he not able to do it or did he decide? I mean, has a lesson been learned mm. from this disaster? Well, and is this a yeah. way to try to kind of save face while at the same time, you know, frankly, I guess it's a relief, right, that he's not doubled down on the bad decision and said, well, now we're going to yeah. do X, Y, and Z, mm. Uh, as well, I mean, maybe there's a sense that it gives one a modicum of, I think, comfort is much too strong a word, but at least perhaps designed for an internal, uh, albeit an elite audience, to project a sense of, you know, I am still a rational mind operating within the parameters of, of my orbit. Um, I don't know, that might be wishful well, thinking, I think, yeah, but...
1: I, 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 I think you've definitely got a point which is, you know, valid. I mean, I think all I would say is I think that in the Russian system as it's now been created partly by Putin and partly by the Sidoviki, I'm not sure that Putin can save face. I mean, you know, what we're witnessing is the beginning of the end of his regime. I mean, the question is how it comes to an end. I mean, and and as I said, there's no succession planning, Uh, you know, in these brittle authoritarian regimes, they smash you know they don't sort of change. They, yeah. How, how is it going to change? I mean, I think that's really what we will, you know, be talking about and speculating about. And you know, I'm thinking that, 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 that one of the ways that they do it, which in a it doesn't save face, but it makes it more elegant, is you know, is the
2: sanatorium. Is He's the sick. Sanatorium. He has some. Yeah type of cancer, which there's already been rife speculation about his health Mm. and all sorts of suggestions that he might have some form of cancer or Parkinson's. I've heard many things. None of them, obviously, I have any ability to confirm. But you're right. It would be a more elegant solution to the problem. Now, I did think it was interesting, though, in the run up to the invasion When he held this extraordinary National Security Council meeting and they were all summoned Mm -hmm. like naughty schoolboys sort of standing there (laughs) while he presided over this enormous desk on the other side of the room. And he basically made them all stand up and say on the record, I support this at Petrushev included, and, and, and I guess what that does on some level is to remind everyone, well, first of all, to sort of humiliate some people and embarrass others and whatever bizarre power games are going on there. But also to remind everyone that you're all on the record now publicly
0: as having supported of, me yeah. in
2: this. And, mm-hmm. you know, if I go down, you're coming down, too.
0: I think that's I think that's really a, a really good way of putting it. I just want to turn the conversation to what is happening inside Ukraine because Clarissa, you you just very recently got back from a trip to Kharkiv, which is Ukraine's second largest city. Uh, the the speculation that Russian forces may in coming days be directed to turn on Kharkiv. Uh, Putin mentioned it in his Victory Day speech, fears that they will turn it into a second Mariupol, a city under siege. Uh, Clarissa you were embedded with an incredibly brave paramedic team who were rescuing and treating injured people who were trapped in buildings and there was a really really poignant moment I thought where you were talking to one of those volunteers and I, I think she was called Alexandra. And she, mm. uh, she told you about how her mother had been begging and pleading with her on the phone uh, for her to stop her volunteering work, uh, to come back home. And she told her mother that it was just something that she had to do. I found it so incredibly mm. moving. So yeah. uh, just tell us more about your, your most recent trip to Ukraine, what you saw there, um, w- what you made of, of the current situation and how the everyday people are dealing with, with these atrocities.
2: I think the first thing you notice going back the second time is how extraordinary it is that Ukrainians have just completely shifted mindset. They're they're at full war footing now. It is functioning like a well-oiled machine in the sense that it's rare in times of war that you see such massive solidarity for one cause and really Very few elements of society who are not galvanized by this uh, wave of patriotism and anti-war effort and doing whatever they can to be a part of it and putting their normal lives aside. And I often wonder what would it look like here in the UK or in the US if there was a war? Would people who were doctors and lawyers be just you know, locking up their offices temporarily and and learning how to shoot and taking up arms or volunteering on the front lines to evacuate elderly or disabled people. I mean, obviously, you have incredible courage and and people really do step into these moments. But the way in which Ukraine has done it with this really profoundly humbling mixture of grace and resilience and grit um, has been pretty astonishing to see. I also was amazed, just going back to Kiev, the last time I'd been there, it was, uh, you know, very much anticipating uh, an attempt by Russian forces to roll through the capital. Um, Mm -hmm. Then they were forced to retreat. And the day I arrived, people were saying, should we order Mexican food for dinner? And I was like, what are you talking about? But you can have delivery Mexican food in Kiev, which is a silly and small detail, but which speaks to the rapidity with which people are like, let's get back on track, not in terms of let's go back to our old life of, you know, having fun and going to cafes and all that stuff, but more about like, let's make sure that the engine is continuing to hum and that businesses are reopening and that we are not sort of being bullied into a sort of solely defensive posture. And I think that that is also reflected in, in the in the sort of military strategy that you see as well. Recently, we've seen a number of major counter offenses coming from the Ukrainian military in and around Kharkiv, for example, taking back villages that have been under Russian control for some time. Um, and when you think, as Sir Richard had talked about earlier, I mean the sort of dire prognosis, not only within Russia from the FSB, but also in the U.S., the anticipation was that Kiev would likely fall in a matter of days, and and here we are months later having this conversation. So, and the context of Kharkiv is is different for many reasons. It has it's a city that has basically been subject to relentless bombardment now for. Uh, the entirety of the war with different levels of intensity at different points of time. And you have parts of the city, which are more or less uninhabitable, uh, Saltivka, where I was with those paramedics, for example, and yet people continue to live there. And then you have other areas of the city, which have not yet been evacuated where the mayor has not called on people to leave their homes and, and where people continue to, Try to you know carve out some vague fashioned normalcy um, within what's possible there, given the fact that there is constant bombardment and it goes through the night and the shelling through the day, um, and there is definitely a sense of palpable fear from people that they would become uh, the next Mariupol, as as you mentioned. I still think strategically that would be exceptionally difficult for the Russian military to pull off at this stage. They did try to go into Kharkiv earlier and they were beaten back pretty quickly with their tails between their legs. And with the sluggish progress that is being made in donbass by the russians Kharkiv would be such a diversion for them um that you know it could potentially have a seriously debilitating effect on their entire operation now you're always going to see a lot of activity going on a- around Kharkiv by virtue of where it is geographically right so it's just over 20 miles from the russian border and the push in the north so when you look at Donbass, right, it's a push up from the south, in from the east and down from the north. The the place, the sort of center of the operation for the north northern push down is a city called Izium, which is about two hours south of Kharkiv. So that supply line up from Belgorod in Russia down to Izium is crucial for the Russians. And the Ukrainians are often trying to disrupt it. And I think that's a big part of why you're seeing a lot of bombardment in Kharkiv in general, not necessarily a desire to try to take the city, but to try to neutralize it and to try to stave off counter-offensives in and around that important supply line. So now the key question I think becomes not to get like bogged down in the sort of military strategy of this, and I'm not uh, an expert on military strategy anyway, but now that mariupol has largely been taken um by russian forces does that then free up a lot of russian forces to go and join the uh the fight in donbass and would that have some kind of uh of an, a sort of an empirical effect on the battlefield that you could really see. Because when I was there on the front lines in Donbass, what you were seeing is like two days of fierce fighting and you move up three streets, the Russians one day, and then four days of counter and the Ukrainians take back one street and then, and so on and so forth. And so these towns that we were talking about, Papasna and Rubizhna and others, were not towns that I think it was anticipated would take so long to to capture or to fall. And they are towns that are still contested, even now, you know, nearly two weeks after, after I left. Clarissa, Putin's decision to invade
0: Ukraine has transformed this country and it's gonna take years to recover. The the UN is now projecting as many eight as many as eight million people are going to flee Ukraine as refugees. The UNHCR is now seeking nearly two billion dollars to support desperate people in neighboring countries to Ukraine. They say that seven million Ukrainians are displaced inside the country and 13 million are still stranded in conflict zones and unable to leave due to the security risks. So in your reporting, how how do you quantify the amount of damage? Uh, the havoc this man has wreaked on Ukraine. How do you quantify that for your viewers?
2: I think it's always a struggle. The camera obviously allows you to tell a story in a very rich and visual way, but it still is sort of two-dimensional, right? So I can only give you a feel for what's right in front of me. It's very difficult to convey the sort of full scale or scope of a, of a scene, Um you know, obviously, we use drones now as well. That helps to give people um, a greater appreciation of the scale of the damage. But what what is harder to do is to make people feel and understand acutely that in every single house that's been damaged is a family and a people with a story. And it may be that they were living in their cellars for months, as so many who I talked to were, and then one day the father the man of the house went out to get some water because there was no running water and was killed um, by an artillery shell. It may be that they were living in their basements as another family I met were. And one day the Russians turned up in their village and took their daughter away. And a 21-year-old math teacher from Broverie, which is a uh, a, a suburb to the east of Kiev, and she's never been seen again. And so, all of these people, every home has so much heartache, and so much loss, and so much fear, and so much anger, and so much anxiety. And the challenge, I think, as a journalist is to make it possible for people around the world living lives that are not necessarily touched by conflict to feel profoundly connected to the stories of people in Ukraine and and what's happening even though they may never have visited there they may not speak the language they may not be deeply interested in the geopolitics but they can understand how it must feel for a mother to see russian soldiers take away her 21 year old daughter and never see her again. And so that's what I try to do. I try to tell stories that are, are really driven by characters and by people, because when we use numbers, like 8 million people might become refugees. What does that really mean? What does that really look like? Who are those 8 million people? It becomes, it's so enormous. It's so vast that we can't really personalize it and humanize it. And I think that's a hugely important thing, to do as journalists so that, that people around the world don't become inured to it, don't just get used to it, but continue right. to feel the full force of the horror of what's happening there every day. And that's how you keep this story on the front page. And that's why it's so important to keep it on the front page.
0: V- very well said. And, and in your in your i think 15 years you've spent reporting on conflicts around the world and speaking to war-stricken people and meeting families um, affected by the most awful atrocities have you noticed any is there anything that struck you about ukraine i mean how how has covering the the, bomb- the bombardment in these cities how does that compare to the time you spent in syria the time you spent in in yemen and covering other conflicts
2: it's it's always very difficult to compare conflicts because they're all so different. There are certain threads or strands that that run through all of them. but they all present different challenges and um, they're all unique in in the sort of the the dynamics. They're united in the sense of tragedy and and violence and horror and, and bloodshed and uh, loss but they're they're very, very different in terms of the the logistics of covering them. And one thing that's been very challenging with Ukraine is that it's a vast country. I think a lot of people don't have an appreciation for just how enormous it is. So you will you know you'll already be in Donbass and you'll still be driving two or three hours every single day to try to get closer to these towns in different directions and 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 get a more accurate picture. of of what's going on. And, and that's why, you know, at CNN, we've had to have many different teams in, in all different parts of the country. And then the other thing that's made it challenging is that there has been such a concerted effort, uh, on the Russian side to, you know, push out disinformation and misinformation. Mm. And that's always very difficult as we become more accustomed to social media wars. Um, it means that there's a lot more for us to do in terms of vetting information, verifying videos, trying to get uh, a, a, a sort of more objective sense of what actually transpired in a place, and and then even just dealing with the fallout of the sort of inevitable counter narrative that will come out. The Russian state TV just did some b- bizarre piece about me and the story that I did in Kharkiv, which you mentioned, and saying, "Oh, you know, Clarissa Ward." almost didn't get out of Afghanistan. She made it in the end. We hope she gets out of Ukraine alive. And you're just thinking to yourself, What on earth? When but that's when, that's when you know the you're state doing a broadcaster damn good job. to make a comment like that. But I mean my point is there's there's all sorts of uh things that I haven't had as much experience, although to a certain extent in Syria, that well, um that yeah you are contending with in Ukraine.
0: I'm glad you bring that up. I know we're running out of time, but I, I, I really just want to ask um, this something in particular. You bring up a misinformation and the, and the war of narratives. You, you were in Afghanistan covering the fall of Kabul and the rest of the country to the Taliban. And... And you were attacked on social media from various uh, Mm. right-wing columnists and supporters. They took issue with you donning a hijab whilst out on the street, failing to grasp that on the occasions when you were broadcasting from inside a secure compound, you were free to have your hair out, you wore colourful clothes, you wore what you want. Whereas when you went out onto the streets you had to put on the hijab because the Taliban were in control. I really don't want to get into US politics and the political climate in the States. Mm. Um, The division is reaching fever pitch. Everyone can see that. But I just wanted to ask you because... You are there, you're risking your life to to bring to the American people and CNN's international audience factual and reliable information about what is happening uh, in these places, particularly in Afghanistan, a place where many people are invested in, they've lost family members in, and you have these armchair keyboard warrior types, trothing you on social media. Was that frustrating for you? And are you finding it harder these days to communicate the truth to a receptive audience? Is, Is it harder to get the message across?
2: I think in some ways it is harder because there's a lot of skepticism now from all sides about mainstream media. But my attitude to it in general, honestly, is tune it all out and get on with the work you know if if senator ted cruz wants to you know makes a ridiculous categorization based on his misunderstanding of one five second part of a piece i did let him have it and if the democrats then want to take something that i said at the airport out of context and go to town with that and say that i'm critical of president biden let him have it it's not important because it's not really about me and it's not really about the work it's that's about them you know using this stuff for their own political objectives. I think our job as reporters is to you know pull up our sleeves and and do the work and tune out the noise. And sometimes it is hard and it is distracting especially on social media which is just a cacophony often of some really uh critical voices, powerful voices, hurtful voices, violent voices, all sorts of voices but I can't control them, and that's not my job to do that. So I tend to just put Twitter down, especially in a big breaking news story, and remember that really my job in that situation is to give a voice to the Afghan people and 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 just stay focused on that and, and, and let everybody else fight on Twitter about it. <laughs>
0: Well said, well said. I have, I know we're out of time, but I just have one last question to you. Uh, and there is something that uh, people may not know about you and something that I am insanely jealous of. Uh, jealous is probably not write the, word, oh the right word because a lot of hard work will have been involved. And that is because you're somewhat of a polyglot. Uh, you speak apparently French, Italian. I've seen you speak Arabic. You speak Russian, Spanish, and apparently a little Mandarin. How?
2: It's all at different levels. Let's just be let's just be clear. I speak French and Italian decently, Russian and Arabic conversationally, and Mandarin I speak like basic. I lived in Beijing, so you do have to you do have to speak some Mandarin or you're not ever going to leave your apartment. <laughs>
0: I, I mean, I just, I think I think that's, I just, I, yeah, I'm just super jealous. I mean, I grew up in a different country. I grew up in Indonesia and I wasn't even able to hang on, hang on to that language. My Indonesian is terrible. Um, but uh, yeah, it must make such a huge difference. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's terrible. I used to speak it fluently and then we moved to Singapore and within six months I forgot all of it. It's hugely embarrassing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it must make such a huge difference to be able to, to talk to people in their native language, and you know, the, you're you're on camera talking. It to does. People in the language it
2: does. Yeah. It does. And I now feel acutely aware of it when I was in Afghanistan, and I and I, d- I don't very sadly speak any Dario Pashto, and oh, you really feel that you're you're missing that extra muscle. It is a it is a wonderful thing, even on a very limited level. Obviously, in terms of my linguistic abilities, to be able to just open the door. And, and have that connection, that direct connection. And, okay, I'm not understanding everything you're saying, but I'm getting the thread. And it means that instead of having that translator as this sort of extra barrier between us, we're actually communicating directly in a very organic, authentic way. So whenever I can do that, it's um, it's definitely a real help.
0: It's 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 hugely. Uh, I'm I'm in absolute awe. I speak very very bad Syrian Arabic and even worse Indonesian. Uh, terrible French. Richard, do you have any languages up your sleeve?
1: Uh, well, I, I, I've lived and worked in France and Switzerland a lot, so I speak French fluently. And my French was pretty good at one stage. It's a bit rusty. It would take a few weeks to get it back. Rather peculiarly, I used to speak Czech quite fluently. That's interesting.
2: Makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, because I was behind the Iron Curtain in Prague. I had to speak it. It It's my job to speak it. So, And I studied it and um, got to quite a high level. Uh, Whether I can still speak it now, I can still read it, but um, I'm just sort of massively out of practice. And, um, you know, after that, my languages are all little bits and pieces. But uh, I'm I'm not a great linguist. I have family members who are fantastically good linguists, (laughs) but I won't go into that. Um, You know, Japanese, Chinese and other members of my family really, really speak these languages seriously well. But um, so there is a sort of tradition in our family of foreign language speaking. And my wife is a fluent French and Russian speaker. So um, there you go. I'd like to speak Italian. I'm really fed up I can't speak Italian because I mean, if you got Latin <laughs> and French, you know, you can have No time, time to like the present, dog. Richard. I know, I know. Maybe I should give it a Do again. it.
0: <laughs> Clarissa, thank you so, so much uh, for joining us. It's really, really great to hear uh, your experience, you coming back from the field and uh, you no doubt will be back uh, to Ukraine soon. So stay safe. Um, thank you so much for your reporting and for sharing it with us Thank today.
2: you. It's been my pleasure. I've really enjoyed the conversation.
1: Can I add my admiration for your courage, Clarissa? You are amazing.
2: Oh, thank you, Sir Richard. That's really
0: kind. That's all for this episode of One Decision. You can follow Clarissa's work on CNN. She's on Twitter at Clarissa Ward. You can also follow us. We're at One Decision Pod. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. We drop new shows every Thursday. From me and the team, thank you for joining us. See you next time.